Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I have ex-control freak CEO Matt Blakely on the program today. That's me. Matt, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Good to be on. From, from sunny Orlando, Florida. That's right. It is very sunny and hot today. Matt has a great story. His, his literal tagline is uh, ex-control freak. And I think I it's... I thought I just put it out there. It just, exactly. By the way, very, uh, very self-aware. I probably could put that in my in my tagline as well. It wouldn't come across. As you know what? Story. I actually think that most people could. And I also don't think it's a Boolean, like one or the other. Like I'm just fully not a control freak. I think there are levels of it, but I, I like to get people thinking and let it be okay or normalized to say that I have those tendencies. Well, we're going to get into this in the podcast. What's interesting about your story is you, you had this point, and by the way, Matt's an entrepreneur, started a company. And we'll talk about why he started it and what it does in a little while. But at some point, you kind of hit a wall and realized you were the problem. Correct. A Which is the most key moment to, have to, ask the, to say that I might be the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And most entrepreneurs, especially if you ask outside investors, recognize that some entrepreneurs never get there. They don't realize they're the problem. And I'm an entrepreneur. And when you birth this thing, right? It's your idea. It's your baby. You probably know it better than anybody else. It's hard to let go. Absolutely. Really hard. So... Fast forward, you sold the company. Now you're kind of evangelizing this concept, which is uh, it's unique. I mean, there's a lot of noise, a lot of coaches on LinkedIn. No one's taken this approach, which is why I reached out and read, you know, read some of your posts and looked at some of your videos and said, geez, Matt, I mean, if we just solve this problem, right? If we just solve this problem, it would change the great resignation. It would change productivity. It would change companies going from that plateau up to where they really could reach their potential. So to me, this is the root, the root problem. This is the root cause. Okay. This is like Mr. Smith in the matrix. Just got to get past them. Right. Right. All right. I don't want to deal with symptoms. I want to actually handle the, the real root. So let's step back to 2005. You started this company called MB3 and it was after Florida was hit by four major hurricanes. What inspired you to start the business? What was the problem you were trying to solve? I had a friend. I went out to coffee with him that worked for the state of Florida government. Mm-hmm. And he was overwhelmed. Uh, this was after the first hurricane, Hurricane Charlie. And really overwhelmed. All the paperwork coming in from cities, municipalities, uh, requesting assistance from the hurricane. At, at the time, it was all handled by paper. Really messy process. So this was a very overwhelming situation when you're handling it all manually like that. They were understaffed. So I just said, Hey, can I try and help solve that problem? Uh, So I didn't come up with the problem or I wasn't sitting, sitting in bed, dreaming of dreaming of things. It was just, I heard of a problem and I thought I could solve that. So he ended up bringing me the next day to, to meet his boss. And I pitched, let me just do this. I actually said, let me do it for free. And he said, let's give it a shot. What were you doing at the time? Sorry? What were you doing at the time when you decided to do this? I mean, what were you currently um, doing? I was there? working for a software company. Okay. And so I just pitched this thing and I actually uh, ended up kind of pitching it to the CEO of that software company. He, he wasn't interested in pursuing this direction at the time. So I ended up leaving, starting this, taking a bit of risk. But I was, 
I was in my 20s. I was prepared to take that risk at the time. So it, it wasn't a big deal to me. Ended up just working in the state of Florida office here in Orlando and it uh, just building it and it ended up doing a really great job at handling the requests, handling the overload, and then it spread from there to other states. So let's uh, touch on a couple of things. Uh, first of all, you're right on the timing, doing this in your 20s. Yes. Um, I did it in my 40s, not necessarily the right time. <laughs> totally, totally. And I hear about that when people have kids and family. Yeah. I think that would have been tough for me because I know I, I didn't have those things at the time. So it made it a little bit easier to take the risk. I mean, I'm not discouraging anybody from starting a company at any time and, and pursuing their dream. It, it worked out and I have a very supportive wife and, and great kids. So I was able to manage it. But first of all, recognizing that there was a problem to be solved, right? And to your point, sometimes you don't have to invent the problem. You just got to be there when no one else is trying to solve it. You just have to notice it. You have to be yeah. curious about it. I think that's uh, sort of simple business. So this is very interesting to me because you said you just kind of hunkered down at this public office and started to solve the problem. My guess is it was, and this is important for entrepreneurs to understand, just get started, right? Yes. Just don't wait till you finish the perfect version of the software to release it. Get out there and do it and test it. So I'm guessing you were kind of just doing this thing in spreadsheets and databases and taking phone calls and manually handling until you It was really, out. really basic at the time. Yeah. I ended what, up just focusing on... So I was fortunate to get in on solving the problem at an early phase where initially... The way the phase works, uh, if this is funneling FEMA funds to, to, to local government. Okay. So let's say, a, let's say a bridge is out because of the hurricane. That city... Uh, in which the bridge exists, would then apply for assistance to the state. And then the state coordinates with FEMA. So that middle piece was very manually done. And I started with just a simple application form. It's a one-page form. And I started with that. You're thinking now there's all this form software, but back then that that wasn't the case. It wasn't that easy to just create a quick form and collect information online. So it was a bit of a different world then. So created that form, put it into a database, and that's how it started. Just very basic it looked really horrible. One thing I really learned over the years, even from then investing into making it look better, sometimes the look of it doesn't matter so much as they just did a simple function. And the look is not always, but sometimes just about the founders or or, or the creator's feeling of, I just want it to look good. Uh, There's a place for that, but especially for the purpose of that software, it was, it was adequate and did the job. Yeah. By the way, so such an important lesson there, just get it out there in people's hands and use it. Yeah. You'll find out. And getting real time feedback all the time, just being in the office was so key. And that's something that in later years of owning the company, I almost missed in a sense because then I had a family. I wasn't on the road as much. Just being in the office, seeing when people complain, I'm right over their shoulder a second later. And I'm seeing, oh, yeah, this is a little awkward using this. No problem. Let's work on that. That's as quick as it was to just make, make tweaks, make updates. And although there might be a lot of bad software practice compared to today's standards and how that was working. The benefit there is just real-time feedback, making corrections on the fly and really making it customized to what they're looking for. So you you get this thing off the ground. It's just you kind of building out forms and automating some things. At what point did you realize, A, this is a business and B, I need to hire some help? Yeah, it was pretty early on because I could see that it was being successfully used. And there was a lot more to the process that wasn't managed in the software okay. early on. And it was coming. So it works in phases. First you apply, then you go through some different checks and balances. And then when it gets to the financial part of it, 
now you have to be able to manage the finances to be able to coordinate with FEMA, send it to the, the local yeah. government. It gets more complicated in a sense as the yeah. process goes along. So I could see that that was coming and hired a couple of people within six months. But my mindset at the time was very much as a software developer. Sure. That was my mindset. Okay. You brought some people in to help you understand the financial movement of funds in, in a software application between uh, Actually more uh, just people like myself that were software minded. Huh. Um, so I was in person. So I was interacting with the client, collecting the requirements, and then working with my team in a sense to give them pieces. And that's, I would say that's step one of the problem that I was the conduit for that information. So what that means is, this is sort of foreshadowing of what's to come, but if I'm the one that knows all the information on the ground, not because I'm smarter, not because I'm better, I'm just there and I right. have the information, I have an advantage. So I can look like the one that knows everything because <laughs> I'm there. So right. what they know is up to me. Does that make sense? It completely does. Yeah. And at some point you start to drink that Kool-Aid and realize- totally. Everything has to go through me. Yes. Um, yes. Did you? And I, I see this in in other leaders, CEOs, where they're they'll complain about maybe their team, and they they're kind of they're almost blind to the fact that they have that natural context advantage. Until you realize that part of my job needs to be just sharing this stuff. Whatever I know, the higher you are with an organization, more access to information you're going to have. Right. So a big part of your job is just sharing that information so that people have can make intelligent decisions based on that, like you can. Yeah. Did you at any point raise money or did you, did you no. bootstrap this and grow it the whole way? Yeah, bootstrap. I had the advantage of an early client uh, that was free at first, ended up paying, and then um, had a couple t- tough times in the first, let's say, two years. But then Hurricane Katrina happened a year, year and a half after this, I started the company. And Hurricane Katrina was huge for... It, the Gulf Coast states, so Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, they really, in a sense, didn't have a choice because it was such an overwhelming event for them to, to handle it. So they, they became clients. And were you able to scale? I mean, how, how, how did that work? I mean, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a scariest hell thing. Like, oh my goodness, how do we manage this? Yeah, I, I don't think I thought a lot about it. I just mm-hmm. went into execution mode. So I kind of, I almost followed my previous pattern of, I would be on site so it was those three states and I would drive between those three states basically every week. I'd spend two, one to two days in each spot. Okay. And they're not exa- those offices aren't exactly close to each other. So right. it might be a five, six hour drive, do it late at night, start in the morning at the next place. Again, I was the one on site. I was just kind of following the past pattern of let's just be there, which is great for the client. You're, you're there for them. You're helping them. But from a leadership perspective, it's putting me in the middle of all the information, the whole situation. I am the bottleneck. That's just yeah. the way it was working. Yeah, I know in my in, the, in the, the first company I started, I didn't realize at the time, but I was the bottleneck as well. I was raising money constantly. Yeah. So like you, I, I would drive six hours to do one pitch, drive six hours home. Wow. I'm gone for 12 hours. And when I'm gone, no one's doing sales. No one's doing marketing. No one's representing the business. And I kind of half-assed, you know, brought some people in to help me, but didn't, even when I brought them in, I didn't help them, right? I was not around to help them grow. I learned too late what it would take to properly scale a business with the right team. We could have made adjustments and changes other places had we focused the right way to do that, but it was, you know, it was not front of mind for me. Yeah. In a sense, scaling a business is as simple as 
becoming less a bottleneck. Yeah. That's a real oversimplification, but that's very often the case where you have, you can identify one, two, three people where they're the bottleneck and it's not going to scale beyond what they can do themselves. That's why when you see people being the hero, working late nights, working all weekend, that's just, that's a red flag to me when I see that from a CEO, that's just the mentality of whatever I can do. I just need to scale a little bit more instead of how can I help other people become more successful? So this thing can more naturally organically scale. So your profile says it was around year 10 where you you said you were kind of just on the treadmill. Yeah. And I hate that it was a decade. I mean, that's, that's a long time. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, our skulls are a little thicker than others. Right. So, um, and and you know, when, like you said, when business is there, you feel like we're being successful until you wake up and look around you and go, maybe this isn't what success looks like. Totally. So what was the moment or the series of moments in year 10 that said, geez, I got to make a change. How'd that happen? It was, I'd say a series of moments, but somewhat a moment as well. It was pretty quick that I realized for me, it was about, I wanted to scale the business really badly at the time. I think around, let's say five to 10 people. I'm not sure the exact number. And I wanted to grow the business, but I could just tell mathematically with my own time, it just wasn't possible. So I became very frustrated that how can I grow this thing? And they're just, I almost had an epiphany one day that the issue is me. I'm the bottleneck. And I don't know how to describe that anymore because this is a a moment that I'd love to inspire for other people to just think, and maybe the question is, could people just ask the question, could some of the lack of growth or could some of the issues reside with me? And that's why I'm so big on humility, because if you can't ask that question, that's going to hold back a whole lot of problems. So for me, I think it might be me. And I realized I wasn't leading. I was really managing, directing, doing, and that you're going to be in the middle of that forever. But leading, it was a paradigm shift, complete paradigm shift that oh, yeah. if I'm leading in a scalable, healthy, effective way, my success is more about I'm succeeding vicariously through my team. So I, I need to be setting them up to be excelling. And the, the more I can do that, essentially, the more I can accelerate growth. Yeah. Yeah. I had an interesting revelation. Unfortunately, I didn't come up with it myself. One of my board members and advisors, and it was after a particularly difficult time during the business. And we had just finished a board meeting and he was the chairman, good friend, strong supporter, always told me like it was. And he looked at me and he said, you're exhausted, aren't you? I said, dude, I'm, mm. I'm barely keeping up here. He said, we don't pay you to kill yourself. We pay you for results. So figure that shit out. Yes. Right. It was great. I'm like, yeah, maybe I am the problem. Maybe I'm I've got to rethink this. And we had a great team, right? It was, it wasn't them. It was, it was me not realizing how to, you know, how do we spread the decision-making out? How do we enable people to be more successful, take risks and then let them be comfortable with mistakes? Like we're going to fail fast. So that was a long time ago. We pay for results. That was, that was a great line. Yeah. Because there are multiple ways of achieving results for anything in life. Yeah. And I think you can go with the brute force method as a CEO which is the work, working more hours, just putting more effort into it. Or you can just pause for a second and yeah. think about how can I achieve those same results with less effort? And that's not, not from a lazy perspective. No, I'm just saying from a healthy perspective and something that's more sustained, can grow in a more sustainable fashion. Yeah. How can I do that? And that, that's a key question. Yeah. And it was, I, know, I, I wasn't necessarily 
looking for sympathy from him, you know, because of the hours and whatever we were putting in. It was actually liberating because he wasn't saying, I don't appreciate you and the work you're doing. He was saying, that's not it, right? So if you could achieve results and work half as hard, we'd still be just as grateful. That was like, figure that out, right? It's not about you just grinding. It's about you figuring out how to flip the business. So when you had this epiphany, you ate some crow, right? That's the principle of the program. Exactly. What was the first thing you did to make a change? The first thing I did that I highly, highly recommend to anyone else that I, I haven't heard of a lot of people following this advice, but I think you need to just sit down with your team and tell them you had the epiphany and be honest about it and say, this is, I, I've suddenly realized that I'm limiting this thing. I'm not helping you all. I'm not setting you up to succeed in the right way. And I need your help to really transition to be a different style of leader. So number one, showing some humility and letting seeing people that you're acknowledging there's a problem, which I'm sure there's deep down inside just cheering like, yeah, finally you see it. Yeah. Uh, But then you're inviting Mm -hmm. feedback and you might have to do a lot more than just that to create an environment of safety where you get that feedback. That's a start, an initial event that sets the stage for feedback. It's well said. You're right. I mean, you can say it and everybody probably was relieved to hear you say it, but then they're all like, we've known you for 10 years, Matt. Exactly. Doing it's very different. You got to prove to us that you're willing to make this change. Correct. So did you make any organization? But the words changes? still matter. Like, and well, I, words I posted matter, a lot sure. on LinkedIn about yeah. actions matter more than words, but the words do matter. The words and mixed with the posture, I'd say. Yeah. Got it. That's good too. They could actually see you meant it, right? Like this is not lip service. Matt's had an, he's had an epiphany. He's had a moment. Totally. Totally. Got Give it. examples here. Yeah. Here's ways I've operated that I think this is just not right. Okay. So that's a really good point. You gave examples. That's great. That truly shows you're self-aware and know the points of pain. That's excellent. All right. So from there, you also have to really paint a picture of who you want to be and what, what you want to look like as a team. Wow. So great. painting that picture is really key. Uh, and again, these are words, but I am a big believer in setting the direction very clearly by words, by uh, just laying it out clearly. This is where we want to head. And then actions matter a lot more than that, but both matter. When you finish that session with the team, everybody kind of had this sense of relief, like Matt's, he's got it. Now, what do we do next? What were the two or three steps that you did to, to A, show them you meant business and B, drive some change? We started discussing right away uh, about, let's say, a company culture guide of sorts or va- that mixes in values and how we want to operate together. So there, I remember several discussions about kind of collaborative discussions. What do we want to be? What does that look like? And a big theme that came up was empowerment over control. Uh, that's something I'm really passionate about to have people be empowered, uh, both with knowledge and the ability to act and make decisions on their own versus controlling someone, which is they don't really have the knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. You're just telling them what to do. So we explored that a lot. We went through a book, a couple of different books as a team. One of them I remember was uh, Multipliers. It's a book about multiplying the greatness in the team. And that was an important book, I think, in just going through it as a team, seeing this is really this concept of empowerment in a sense, what it looks like. Lots of examples. We had lots of just collaborative discussions about how this would apply to us. Okay, good. Did anybody on the team not buy into this concept? This is going to sound a little bit crazy, but 
there are certain people that I do think function a little bit better in a controlling work environment. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a bit of a, an odd phrase, but um, no, maybe the word control there are. lose people. But what I mean is you might have circumstances in your personal life, situations where you actually just want to go to work and s- somewhat turn your brain off and just be told what to do. And it's just a small part of your life, which is fine. Uh, that, that's what you want to do. And that's, that's how you want to do it. But empowerment is more about critical thinking. It's about being curious. It's about trying to get new information. It's about making decisions, owning your role. So there's good and bad to that, that some people will really resonate. And the substantially, the team very much resonated with that. And they felt like that was almost setting them free to really become what they wanted to become. But to some, it's too much of a responsibility. That's okay. And I, I ended up putting, putting in our culture guide, just being very transparent about that. This is not for everyone. And I think some of the best company culture is not for everyone. It's good for everyone, but there's different styles of culture in a sense, different styles of company, how they operate. You might be drawn to one versus the other. And I think that's okay. You know, it's refreshing to hear that because it's, it is also something that doesn't come across. And we talked before the, before we started recording all the coaches out there and all of the work from home culture advocates and, yeah. you know, hundred percent, I'm a supporter of work from home. I think it is a tremendous productivity boost. I think face-to-face has a, has a big place in a lot of companies. I think it's important. I laugh when I see somebody complain about the fact that they have to get out of their PJs and get their car to go to work and it's frustrating for them. Right. I would be more impressed if they said, look, I prefer to have the 30 minute commute time to be A, more productive or B, spend more time with my family. That I get. What we tend to ignore in those situations is there are a lot of people that have to go to work. Yes. Right. And we're doing them a disservice, dismissing them on the entire conversation because the service industries, every hotel, every hospital, every college, every public service, all those people have to go do their job on site. And for someone to get on a post and literally completely unknowingly and with lack of self-awareness whine about the fact that they had to commute to their job, I find insulting and demeaning, right? Yes. Um, it's kind of popular to do that, though. It is popular. And In a way. It is. You know, I love the post that says, if you're not allowing work from home, you're, you're going to lose your people. Well, guess what? I think what that means is there are certain roles in any organization that make perfect sense to work from home, right? Sales. Man, all day long, go work from home. There's a lot of office function jobs doing what we're doing right here that can be very highly productive. But let's not say that's the only way to do it. Correct. Any advice for that matter is usually missing context. Yes. And people don't even really care to dive into the context. Well, you're absolutely right. I actually consulted with a company who took the culture thing very, very seriously. Mission, purpose, values. And sometimes I see it as you do. It's lip service. These people are in West. They, they meant it. Like it was at the core. But there were certain roles and certain people in the company that did not care. Don't draw me with the four-hour lecture on our mission and values. I come to work to do my job. I want you to pay me well, but I don't care. And you have to respect that, right? You have to appreciate that. that, that that's not what drives them, right? Yeah. Work is a way to provide an income for their family. And I, I think you can go to a certain extent where... It, by the way, any culture, any work, you are not my family, right? Yeah. I mean, this is not my family. No. And that's hard for people. They want to make it so family-based. It's not, right? You do a performance review with your kid and they didn't do their job. You can't fire them. No. You're in all the way and you love them differently, everything else. So I think it's it's But that great. ties into what we talked about with the styles of culture. 
Yeah. There are, there are companies that want to operate substantially like a family. And mm-hmm. it's a really nice, sweet thought. And their intention is to just treat people like family. I don't know, maybe their families are perfect. Like just treat everyone just, it's just yeah. this happy world. And there's a lot that I like about that, treating people nicely. You know, there's a lot that's really good. And I think the heart is good behind it. But I tend to be in a bit of a middle section where I'm not about full on burn people out excellence, do whatever you can to get the job done. Right. But I'm also not about, oh, just all people first. All I'm I'm in the middle. And yeah. generally people these days with so many polarizing conversations don't do well with middle ground. Yes. Um, and I think companies have to walk that up to, to a certain degree. Every company falls on this spectrum between people first and excellence. There's somewhere on it. You, you're going to hear people on LinkedIn that are all about, like you said, the no commute, uh, all these things that are really strongly on the people first side. And I like a lot of that stuff. And then you're going to see many companies, not they don't post this on LinkedIn, but they're really just excellence focused. Yeah. They're going to burn people out. They don't really care. Maybe yep. they're investor funded. They're just about making profit. Part of my point is that I just want companies to be transparent about where they are on that spectrum. Just tell me we're, we're over here and we're just all about excellence. And if you're down for that and you just want to come work hard, try and rise to the top, make more money, sign up for it. Great. And that's not my thing, but like, just be transparent about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are, companies- I try and go somewhere in the middle and I'm clear about the tension that exists in the middle because you're going to have to decide. So for example, you have a great client and they want you to get something done. That's going to have to cause people to work overtime for a long time. So now what do you do? You're people first, but you're also want to honor this. These are not easy decisions. So it's not just black and white to make a decision. You have to work this stuff out. Oh, totally agree. And, uh, and I think you're right. There are some people who embrace the, the hustle performance grind culture. They want it, they crave it. And you're right. There are people who are on the other end of the spectrum. They want to bring their dog to work and, you know, and, and hug each other out and join the, you know, join whatever committee. And both and, can be successful in their own right, given yeah. their own definition of success. That's Correct. different. Well, and I think any organization can benefit from some middle ground, right? Every organization ultimately has to perform. Measuring what that performance is, now, for me, I don't, I don't wake up every morning and think about building a billion-dollar company. That doesn't drive me. That doesn't motivate me. I'd like to create a company that has a mission, is successful, and that success can be measured every year, right? We can determine what that looks like. We can lay out our plans and goals. But building a billion-dollar company is not the goal. Building a company that has a strong mission that people feel empowered to do their job is the goal, Yes. right? And by the way, there are people that just want to build a billion-dollar company. Absolutely. They could care less what it's doing. Just Especially if we're talking about investor funded. Yeah. Most investors, that's just, it's just for a return. Let's just be yeah. honest. Mm-hmm. No, it is. But that's their job. Correct. Right. Good for them. And they know it. They mean, as long as you realize it. Just yeah. say what it is. That, that's all I ask. And don't, don't be investor funded and say you're people first. But as soon as they get in the door, they're like, it's not people first. I can tell right away. Just don't be something you're not. No, absolutely. So you had this 10-year revelation. You've shifted the, the culture of the business. You've got your team engaged. They're part of the, they're part of the discussion. They yeah. feel empowered. And let's say that's um, a six-month process. Okay. So it took from, six from, months. From the announcement until yeah. we're really in a great groove. Okay. Uh, and that, that amount of time, it's not a fixed amount of time. I just don't want anyone to get the impression it's one day. 
And I also even don't want to get the impression it has to be years and years because I've heard both sides. Yeah, even six months to me seems kind of rapid. I mean, yeah, it's pretty yeah. amazing. And again, there's no, we've arrived. That doesn't exist with culture. I don't care what anyone says. There's no, we've just nailed it, done, check. That's not how it, how right. it works. I'd say we've substantially aligned with where we're trying to head is maybe better. That's a little complicated, but the idea yeah. is that we're close enough that we're starting to track the right way. We have to stay on it. We have to stay monitored. We have to stay hiring in al- alignment with what we're looking for. We have to keep having conversations about where we're falling in the spectrum. This is an ongoing part of working on a company, part of leading. What was the first sign that things were starting to track the right direction? I think a real tangible sign for me personally was just my hours were going down. Okay. And that's something I've seen in other CEOs that I've, that I've worked with that they might've been working evenings, weekends. And as they start to really see their team empowered and hand over real authority or real ownership, they start to see they've got less on their plate. And I could see that I was freed up to mingle more with the team or after a meeting, pull someone aside and say, Hey, I really loved how you did this. Let's talk about this or give some feedback. I had margin to actually think about everyone else in the room. And most CEOs really don't have that margin. And it's hard for me to convince them that it's important. Uh, And it sounds very much on that people first side of the spectrum. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, just love people, care about people. But that's where real productivity happens because your time is fixed. What you can produce is fixed. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about everyone else and how you can maximize the team at large, mm-hmm. you're going to make far more impact, both business impact and just personal impact. But I don't want people to get to make it cloudy that it's just all this people first activity. This is right. for business impact. When you think about the fact that you, you found time in your schedule to think about bigger things, moving the business ahead more strategically. And like you said, focusing on driving productivity to the whole team by letting them do the same thing. Yes. What were the first business metrics that started to show change? So right around that time, we also were just taking on a lot more work than we had had uh, before that. And we were just much more able to absorb that. And then we started hiring quite a few people. And that was just compared to previous hiring or previous work that came in, it was just a lot more natural to both be able to find the right people, uh, to get them onboarded, to know that we have to focus on them, getting them as much context as possible. It's really just seeing that the team was effect, a lot more effective with handling sort of the ebbs and flows of work and just the capacity to take on more, I'd, I'd say. So it, I often use the phrase, this empowerment over control helps position you for growth. It doesn't guarantee growth, but it positions you for growth. Great phrase. It's a great phrase. So it happened to be good that you decided to have this uh, eating crow moment at the time you were ready to take on a lot more business. Yes, it was very good timing. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I think we would have collapsed uh, if it was the old way. Uh, true. If you were really the bottleneck, you would not have been able to absorb it. Correct. You would have frustrated everybody around. So you do a bad job. And this is what you'll see. You'll see evidence of this in many companies. They do a bad job. They annoy clients. I see this almost every day when I'm working with my bank. You can just see the evidence of things falling through the cracks where I just think people have taken on too much. Companies have taken on too much. They're not capable of executing at a high level at that scale. By the way, visible evidence. I'll give you a great example. A couple of weeks ago, I needed a literally a $3 part for something I was working on in my garage. 
for some reason, I went to Lowe's Home Improvement, which I normally don't go to for this very reason. I just found yes. myself in the parking lot and said to myself, what am I doing? I walked inside. Number one, they didn't have the right part. So I had to buy a $10 part to do a $3 job, which was frustrating to me. I walked up to the front of the store. Not a single register was open. Yes. And there were 35 people in line self-checkout. Yeah. At 9.30 on a Thursday. Okay. So I put the part back and left and drove a half a mile to Home Depot. Walked in. Someone said, hey, how are you doing today? Yes. Found a $3 part. Walked back up to the front. Five registers open. Maybe one person in line at three of them walked right through. And there was a woman standing by the self-checkout assisting anyone that needed help. Mm -hmm. Same market. Same basic talent requirements, completely different business philosophy. But then you, you, so then I'd ask, which company do you think is making more money? Because one has less staff, they have to pay less. The other, you have to pay more staff, but one's losing clients constantly, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely right. And it wasn't that way when Lowe's first came to market. Right. Home Depot was here first, Lowe's built and did a great job of trying to create that customer experience. They're a local North Carolina company, right? I want, I want to support that but I can't give them my business anymore right? because Home Depot recognized we need to change our game. They focused on the details. Their self-checkout is a much better experience. The fact that there are people walking through the store assisting you anytime. And I would tell you their staffing is probably not significantly more than right. Lowe's. It's just better position and better thoughts. Yes. Again, it's that, it's that mindset of, and by the way, those people are empowered to help you. Right. They were exactly. empowered to make decisions exactly. on the spot and take care of it. So, and by the way, go to a restaurant and you're wondering why your food's taking 45 minutes, right? It's, it's hard to find. You'll see this everywhere. Every industry. Everywhere. Banking, lawyers, taking on too much work, not effective. Uh, And I I think it hurts business really. It's really obvious to me, but yet it's just so common. So the company on the street from you in Orlando meets you at a coffee shop and says, I want you to come in and speak to my team. I feel like we're stuck in the same place. You know, this is a trick question because you don't have enough data, right? But if you're sitting in front of the leadership team, and similar story, 15-year-old company stuck, not making traction. Yes. You see good people around you, right? It's not that they don't have good people. Mm -hmm. What are the first things you tell them to A, look at and B, change? I would need to know. uh, I'll just ask you one piece of context. Is the CEO open and humble enough to accept some feedback? Cautiously, yes. I'll take cautiously, yes. Yes. I'll take it. Yep. If it's no, which is often very common, then mm-hmm. I'm not going. You're not going to engage. Uh, no, not going. Right. So if it's cautiously, yes, no problem. The door's open. I would want to talk to that individual first. Got it. And walk through how they could be part of the try, try and communicate a lot of stuff that we've talked about. Talk a little bit about my story and, and just ask a lot of questions to understand what could be some of the problems. And then executive team comes second. Got it. Would you go a step further? Would you meet with anybody else besides the executive team? I think the most effective way to do it, if I was doing a culture assessment of sorts or culture due diligence, uh, I'd want to talk to people at all levels of the organization, just a handful, not even a lot. And I wouldn't do an employee survey personally. I would do conversations just like this. 100%. Uh, Just probe into it, very organic, find out. You'll find out pretty quickly what's the issue. Right. and. I think most of the changes you've suggested are budget neutral. You're not asking people to spend more money. You're just telling them to rethink how they run their company. Uh, Yeah. I just think some people are so ingrained with the 
as a CEO, I have to work long hours no matter what. I have to operate this way. There's the mindset that my team fails often. That mindset is really problematic. And they might fail often, but where are you to blame in that is my question. You got to work through that uh, because I know in my case, some of the team's failures was a lack of context, which points to me. So you have to get people context. You have to get them in the right positions. You have to give them ownership of those areas. And then you can look at how bad they're performing. Most don't get to that point though. So you have to have them set up to succeed. Mm -hmm. And then I do believe you expect success as a result, but they have to be set up properly. You know, one of the things you said earlier in the podcast is is still banging around in my head, which is you, you have to paint this picture of what success looks like. Yes. And I think if you paint the picture, and I always advise clients when they're writing a job description is to tell a story, paint that picture and show the candidate how they fit, what character they are in that story, right? Yes. How do you get us to the conclusion of the story? What's your role? I think that's really important. That's context. That's the context you're talking about. Context. Correct. And then recognizing that some people might act, they not be in, they may not be in the right place in the bus. Are you willing to move them to a different place? Correct. And let them shine. I can think of several situations where I've talked to an employee and they're like, you know what? I've got these six ideas. What if I could go do them? My goodness, let them go do them, right? Yeah. I mean, shuffle what you have to run, let them go do those things, define success in those areas. But sometimes those are the biggest impact because they're in the trenches and they understand how to solve problems. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I, I very much like looking at a team and looking at each person's individual interests and strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You look at those two things. And if you can try and pair their role and what they own with that, it's going to be much better results, much better. So if you care about something and you're good at it now, let me give you some context. Now let's watch and see what happens. Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and people, by the way, they do care, right? They care about something. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Not always what they're doing, but they care about something. So can you align what yeah. they're doing uh, with what they care about? And sometimes you can't. Sometimes having that conversation, let me know it's okay. It's good, right? Hey, you know what, Matt? Now that I've spent some time with you and I understand what you're really trying to accomplish, you know, we may not be the best fit for you. I don't have that role or we don't have that need, yeah. but I'd love to help you get there, right? So why don't we work on a plan that says in three months, you're working in a company that, that has that opportunity for you and you've helped us transition that way. I mean, what a refreshing, stressless conversation. I mean, they can... Totally. I had one client and I, I one candidate, actually an employee, and I said, if you could wake up tomorrow, I did this post, and money and what would you what would you love to do? It was an engineer, and she she goes, I'd like to be an interior decorator. I said, Why are you doing this? She goes, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I went to college for it. I think everybody expected me to, but I, I don't I don't find joy in this. They said, Well, why don't we help you get to get a job as an interior decorator? I know three people that run businesses like this. I'll make an introduction tomorrow. She's like, Really? I'm like, heck yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you would free up a spot in our company to find somebody who was really aligned with this role. Yeah. And then you're going to be happy. And somehow that all that karma is going to come back for all of us. So it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. You can see on LinkedIn by people's headline, often what they care about. So you oh, yeah. look at their headline and they'll say, helping this person do this. And then you look at their work experience and you see, oh, they're executive for this company. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, what they... What they don't like is being executive for that company. What they like is helping people do X and Y. Sure. The second they can help enough people do X and Y, they're out of the other position. That's just Absolutely. the way it's going to work. Absolutely. So can you, 
get people in a place in a company where they're passionate about it, they care about it, which has a lot of different components to it. It's not just, am I interested in the thing? Like, am I interested in sales? That's mm-hmm. one component of caring. Another component is, is the work culture healthy? Do I even want to be here? Do I jive with where they fall on the spectrum of excellence and people first? So is it a healthy environment? Is my boss someone that tries to get the best of me, that's supporting me? All of those things lead to, do you care about the work you're doing? So the more you can invest in what helps a person care about it, the better results you're going to get. Yeah. And I, I think caring and performance can coexist. Some people don't think they can. And the way I look at it is I have 10 people in a team. If they all know that we truly care about their success and happiness. Yes. And sometimes that may mean it's not with us because there would be somebody else outside the organization that would align with this. Correct. So you're better off getting those two people into a place where they can be happy and successful and backfilling them when somebody aligns with your thinking yes. than continue to have them be miserable. It drags down the whole team performance. Yeah. And having that, that open conversation can be liberating. To your point, Matt, it may take a while for that trust to build where they feel like that's actually doable. Yes, that's right. So fast forward, you guys make this change. Things are going well. You have an opportunity to sell the business. How did that come about? I wasn't seeking to sell the business. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to just actually two, two people came a, within two weeks of each other, which is very odd because it's, that wasn't happening constantly uh, right. and ended up one offer that just made, made a lot of sense. It was good partnership. So decided to go for it. And mm-hmm. I, I, it was also a time in my life where I was really wanting to uh, use the phrase at the beginning of this podcast, evangelize some of these concepts. That's, that's how I feel about it. I don't really know what that looks like, but I definitely like talking about it, posting about it on LinkedIn because I, I would like more CEOs to get exposed to this paradigm shift and what it could do for them both personally and professionally. So there's something in that for me that I, I, I want to figure out the way I can help people in that area. As a former control freak drowning CEO, I can tell you, I felt like I was treading water every day and could yes. barely keep my head above it. Yes. I didn't make time for mentorship and hearing input from other people for years at a time. My reading stopped. I mean, I just stopped learning. I was just doing so much doing. Yes. And self-awareness is a really important thing, right? You may think that people are aligned with your vision and your strategy and your process. You may have no idea how much they are not, right? So getting that input and, and opening up to these concepts is great. How can, uh, I'm going to put a link to uh, your LinkedIn profile in the, in the show notes so people can find you and reach awesome. out and say, hey, Matt, can you help, right? Awesome. Um, yeah, and you just inspired my next post about treading water. That was, that was good. So thank you perfect. for that. Well, good. The podcast host has to offer something valuable at some nice. point in the show. Love it. Matt, it's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. What I really enjoy about doing this is, is getting on, on the air with people and then being more inspired than I thought I would be, right? Hearing the true That's story. Awesome. I love that. The best thing about it, you've done it, you've lived it, right? So when you sit in front of somebody and say, hey, here's the thing you may not be aware of, you've been there. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's it's really helpful. So best of luck. I'm kind of helping to continue to build out your voice. I will be uh, myself an advocate in sharing this with other CEOs that I talk to and, and see if we can drive people your way so they can they can make the mistakes before they uh, before they have to eat the crow. Love it. It's been a pleasure being on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 